and we are back into the book of Mark. So we're in Mark chapter 10 this morning. If you want to take your Bibles out, you can flip them open, you can click them open if you got them on a device, uh, wherever it, uh, it may be. Um, but while you're doing that, I want to take just a minute and, and set the stage for what we are going to be getting into. Maybe help a little bit with uh, some introspection so we can apply this text in a real way to our lives. Right? One of the things that we want to make sure that we continue to do uh, at FBH with our sermons specifically is not only that they are informative, but beyond that, that these are helpful as well. We want you to be able to leave this place and be able to leave with some piece of knowledge that can help you in a very real way in your life. So all that to be said. When I was 18 years old, I had a decision to make, uh, like many 18-year-olds do, right? You're, you're at like this crossroads in your life of graduating high school, going into college, like, um, and, uh, and when I was 18, it was when I felt the Lord say, hey, you, you should go into full-time ministry. Like, this is the path that I, uh, that I have for you. And so that was great, except I also wanted to be rich. Um, and those two things don't always go hand in hand. I would actually venture to say pastors who are rich, you might want to be aware of them. Or yeah, just, I'm fine. Don't worry about it, guys. Um, and, uh, and not have money. Like, I just didn't want to be rich just for the sake of like, like having money. But from an early age, I became aware of the fact that my dad grew up really, really poor. Like burnt popcorn and hot dogs for dinner poor, um, burnt popcorn so his siblings didn't want to eat it. It didn't burn just because he was poor. And so, um, so we were really poor. And so his goal for uh, my brother and as well as myself was that we would never have to endure the same thing that, that he had to endure when he was growing up. And not just us, but our families as well. So throughout my life, especially my high school career, my dad was really, really pushing me towards going into business, like going to business, going to business. So much so he was into, he was in business. He was actually a, a, a small town loan loan officer and he financed a, like a third of businesses in Merced at the time or something like that, small businesses specifically. So he was pushing me, like go this direction. So much so that like he would hire somebody who was fresh out of college, like 22, which is four years away. And he'd be like, hey, guess how much I hired this person for right out of college. This is 20 years ago, right? So he was like $32,000. I was like, oh my gosh, that's an unreal amount of money. I could never imagine making that much money in my life. Crazy how perspective changes in 20 years. So Anyway, uh, but he kept like pushing me into that. And the problem was, is that I had felt called to ministry, right? Like I felt like God had put that in my life. And so me and my dad had a conversation one night and um, I was telling him, dad, I feel like I'm supposed to go into ministry. And he was like, well, you know, you can, like, you can be a pastor in any job that you have, right? Like, you know that. And sometimes it actually could even be more effective and like on and on and on. And so, and I don't blame him. Like growing up the way that he grew up, he wanted to make sure that I was financially taken care of. And so here I am about to enter my first year of college and I feel like I should be going into ministry when my dad wants me to go into business. Actually, let me rephrase that. The person paying for my college wants me to go into business, right? So I have a hard, I have a hard decision. And it's not that he would have like disowned me or anything like that um, if I would have chosen a different major. But I thought, you know what? I have a way to make everybody happy. I can make everybody happy. In my life, I am going to both be a business owner as well as a pastor. That was my goal. I was like, you know what? I can have my cake and eat it too. I'll make my dad proud and my heavenly dad proud. Everybody is going to be happy with me, like with this plan, so I can answer God's calling on my life while also never having to worry about money. 
The issue is it took me about three semesters to realize that business was not in the cards for me, especially after I flunked my midterm for accounting. I was like, I went to my accounting midterm, flunked it, walked straight over to the person who can change majors at, a, at college. Like, what is going to get me out of college fastest? They were like, communications. I was like, done. Sign me up. I'm in for communications. So many athletes in communications for some reason. But, but I thought to myself... Everybody, like, like if I could just follow this path of being both a business owner as well as being a pastor, I can make everybody happy. Everybody could be happy. The problem became that after I committed to that idea, I was actually committing to nothing. I was giving the leftovers to both of these things. I thought that I could be bifurcated in my lifestyle in order to appease everyone, but had I tried to hold that line, hold that course, I wasn't going to make anybody completely happy. Nobody, Nobody was. And I, and I would actually venture to say that all of us, in some respect, live a life of bifurcation. And I would argue most of us are living bifurcated when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and our devotion to God. Here's what I mean by that. There are things we hold near and dear to us that seemingly don't interfere with our relationship with God. But... When it comes down to it, are you, are you personally more interested in pleasing God or are you more interested in serving these other things? Examples could include things like, I mean, we'll just stick with the job example. When the rubber meets the road, are you more interested in pleasing God with how it is that you work or are you more interested with pleasing your boss or, or making another sale or whatever it may be, making sure you hit that, hit that quota, landing the next big deal, ensuring that you stay in line for the next promotion rather than, rather than doing your best to work and to honor God and allowing that to be enough in your life? Because let's just be real for a second. The thinking goes like this, and the thinking is very, very slippery. The thinking goes, I want a good job to provide for my family. And that's a good thing. Everybody in here would, would probably agree with that. If I can get a good job, I can then, I, I can provide for my family in a real way, in a way that God would even call us to be able to provide for our families, right? And so that's the, that's the first thinking. That's what I'm called to do. You get the good job, and the next thing you know after you get that good job, you're now competing with other people in your company for being the best at what you do. And as you are doing that, you're doing that so you can get to the next mountaintop. You can get to that, that next peak because once I get there, then my family will be financially secure. Then my family will fully be taken care of. Then we can finally replace that car. We can finally fix the leak in that, in that roof. I remember, Pastor, the Bible talks about making sure my family's taken care of, how I'm supposed to be the leader of my home. And I, I don't even disagree with you. This isn't a bad thing. But this is what happens. Pretty soon, you have made it to all of the mountaintops that only require you to work from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock Monday through Friday. And the next peaks you see are 8 o'clock to 7 o'clock Monday through Friday, or 8 o'clock to 7 o'clock Monday through, through Saturday. But don't worry. It's only going to be for a little while. No, just I'll have to work really, really hard for a little while, and then I can give back to my family. Or I have to, I, it'll just, like, I have to work Sundays, and so because of the fact, like, like it's just going to be, I'm only going to miss church for a couple months, and then I'll be able to get back to church. These are the things in your life that, that largely we need to realign with what God would have for us, because you cannot live a life dedicated to God and be bifurcated in your worship. Meaning... 
that these things, these other things, whether it be your family or your job or your finances or whatever, you fill in the blank. Those things are distracting you from complete and total worship to God, and they're not even bad things. They're all good things. This is the same thing that happens in the book of Mark, starting in chapter 10, verse 17. This is what it says. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go home or go sell you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but, with, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And then verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. So just before this, Pastor Brian talked about it last week, just before this, Jesus is answering questions about divorce. And he's talking about, let the little children come to me, the importance of having faith like children. And then we get to what Luke calls a young ruler who runs up to Jesus. A young ruler, that doesn't actually say that in the book of Mark, it's from the same story in the Gospel of Luke. And so he runs up to Jesus, kneels before Jesus, and, and the Greek here is literally translated closer to actually begging rather than simply falling on his knees. He is begging on his knees. He's begging to Jesus to answer the question, what do I need to do to receive, to inherit the kingdom of God? Desperate to know. Which is interesting when you read the rest of the story. So Jesus, like he often does at this point, he kind of just tries to like pull the meaning out of the words that these people are using on a consistent basis, right? So he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. And then Jesus speaks directly to the heart of this man's question. Jesus already knows this guy intimately, knows him completely and totally, and he pierces his heart, actually, with the next few verses. The first thing he does is he actually reminds the guy that he already knows all of the commandments. Like, you know the commandments. You know the Jewish law. You know the tradition that is required of you in order to get to heaven in the Jewish faith. You know those things. You already get it, so why are you coming to me? Why is it you need more information about how to get into the kingdom of God? Uh, the rich young ruler, he just kind of continues on with it. He tells Jesus, like, look, I've kept all of these things. I've done all the things I was supposed to do. I kept the law. And Jesus looks at him, and some translations say that he loves him. Others say he has compassion on him. And he tells him the one thing that he is lacking at this point. He's lacking the ability to part with his riches. 
Jesus says, go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. Your treasure in heaven will more than make up for it. Go sell it all. And then once you do that, come on back. So the guy gets pretty upset. And not like angry, frustrated, upset, but the guy gets pretty upset. He literally just gets really, really sad. This is actually the, the, the only time in the entirety of the New Testament when somebody has an encounter with Jesus and they leave being sad. But there's plenty of other encounters where other people come to Jesus sad and they leave and they're really happy because they can walk again and they're not paralyzed or he taught them something good. There's other examples where people are just really, really upset at Jesus when they leave. Oftentimes Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders of the law, that sort of thing. But this is the only time in the entirety of the New Testament somebody just leaves sad. And this guy is ripped in two because apart from renouncing his wealth, selling everything that he had, there is no other way for him to get any closer to Jesus. That's it. Jesus at this point laid his finger on the spot of the thing that was holding this guy back from inheriting the, complete, from inheriting the kingdom of God, which was the complete and total devotion to Jesus. That was the one thing that was getting in, in the way. I want to pull a few things out here because I don't, want to, I don't want to misread this passage necessarily. The first thing is this. This is not saying that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, in order to follow Jesus, that everybody has to sell all of their things. Okay? Some of you may be called to do that. But that is not what this is saying. This is not prescriptive in the sense that all of us should do this. This is a warning to a singular man and eventually all people who are rich, that it is incredibly difficult to both be rich and follow Jesus completely. Hey, that's what's going on here. Why? Why is that hard? Well, the assumption becomes that those who are rich, for the most part, don't need reliance on Jesus until something is outside of the control of their money. I largely think this is why the American church has such a difficult time oftentimes putting complete and total faith in God. Because we live in the most affluent nation in the history of the entire world. And so because of that, we can fix things with our own ability. We can fix things with our own, with our own money. But the rich, man, their money can take care of them while they're on this earth the vast majority of the time. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They don't need to worry about making those, those monthly payments. They don't need to worry about if the first floor of their house gets flooded. It is going to be fine. Why? I got money. It'll take care of it. So instead of turning to God in all things, they turn to God in some things, things outside of the control of their money. And this guy's got a real problem because the thing that is outside the control of his money is heaven. Eternity with Jesus. So that's the first thing I want to pull out. The second thing I want to pull out of this part of scripture that it wasn't just wealth this guy is dealing with. It wasn't just that he had money. Right? Clearly he had, clearly had money. It, isn't, it, it, it was hard for him to part with that. I actually think it was also hard for him to part with it because it's not just that he had money. This is where he finds his identity. That's who he is. For 2,000 plus years, we don't know this guy's name. You know this guy's identity? Rich young ruler. Wealthy guy who failed to inherit the kingdom of heaven because he couldn't part with his riches. Like that's how we know him. His identity was, was wrapped up in it. He's known as the rich young ruler. And now, just how he is, like, like, like I would venture to say his identity isn't just based on what they called him. His identity is actually based in what it is that he worshiped. 
That's where he gave all of his energy. It's where he gave all of his time. His identity is wrapped up on what he worships most. So let's take a peek for a second, maybe at, at what it is that we worship most. Let's take a second and look deeply into our own hearts and figure out what it is that is taking precedence over our relationship with God. If you're like most Americans, and, and just being honest, our identity is wrapped up oftentimes in what we do for the most part. That's why oftentimes uh, when you introduce yourself to somebody for the first time, the next question is always, what do you do? Right? What do you do for a living? How are you contributing to society? I don't want to ask about your family necessarily because I don't know if I can relate to that. But I can ask how you contribute to society. I want to know how that benefits me. Right? And so we just act like, like that's where our identity oftentimes, oftentimes lies. So give me a peek into your life. What is it this morning? that you're bifurcated in? What is your identity? Maybe your identity lies with your family. I take pride in my big old family, right? I got, I got a wife, five kids, two dogs, two cats, and at the price of eggs doesn't go down, a thousand chickens in my backyard. That's where I'm at. And I take pride in that. Right, But if I'm not careful with that, that is going to begin to take precedence over my relationship with Jesus. I love being a pastor, but if I'm not careful, being a professional Christian can soon take the place of simply being a follower of Jesus. And these things in themselves aren't bad. I've been called to be a dad. I've been called to be a pastor. Like That is part of my life. But if those things become where my devotion lies, ahead of Jesus, and that then is where we have a problem. Because Jesus speaks to the heart of the issue in verse 24, after the man walks away and he's sad. He turns to his disciples and he tells his disciples how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says they're amazed by this, which I thought was really interesting when I was studying the text. Like, why are the disciples amazed by this? Like, it's a decent metaphor, but I don't think he blew anybody's mind by the fact that a camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. But they're amazed. And the reason is there is that we have a bunch of these guys, these disciples, they're a whole bunch of poor people who have never known wealth. And they're looking at all of the blessings of this rich ruler. And they're like, if this guy who has all of the blessings, has all of the things going for him, never has to worry about his breakfast, never has to worry about his family, never has to worry about anything seemingly in his life, if that guy can't inherit the kingdom of heaven, I don't got a shot. There's no way that I'm going to be able to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, at this point, he points out to them like, hey, stop it. It doesn't matter what you think about getting into the kingdom of heaven. Here's a subtle reminder that no one can be saved on their own. Remember, it's not up to you to get saved. It's by the work of Jesus on the cross that you are found justified. And so unless the belief is, is here, there is no hope for them becoming actual disciples of Jesus. Unless they believe that. There's no hope for them. And unless we believe that, there's no hope for any of us in becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so then Peter, in the next portion at this point, he pipes up and he wants to make sure that his seat in heaven is safe. This is classic Peter, classic leader of the disciples, right? He talks too much, too quickly before his brain has percolated enough to make sure he knows what he's saying. So Peter just kind of blurts out. He's like, hey, Jesus, but remember, we left everything to follow you. We left, we left all of our things to follow you. And I think it was kind of out of, out of self-preservation that Peter said this. 
Right, because Jesus is going, he goes to Capernaum, and he calls Jesus, and he calls, he calls uh, 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 Matthew there as well. And he's like, hey, come and follow me. And they literally just drop their nets. They're like, all right, I'm out, family, good luck. Right? I always think about Peter as a father or as a husband. I'm like, what happened with your wife for those three years? Regardless, I'm sure they were fine. But Peter drops everything, and he follows Jesus. And like I said, I'm sure it was out of self-preservation that this whole entire thing is going on. But regardless, Peter is actually right. Peter's like, I'm going to give up everything in order to follow you. And beyond that, everyone who fully commits to themselves, fully commits themselves to Jesus has to make the same sacrifice. Everybody has to be willing to offer up everything they have. And Jesus doesn't care how much or how little you give. The concern is actually how much you're keeping for yourself. That's Jesus' concern here. Right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't care if this guy gives a million dollars because the reality is he's giving out of his wealth. He is a rich young ruler. You can, you can fund the ministry for years and years and years. The problem wasn't how much he was willing to give. The problem was how much he wanted to keep. And he wanted to keep his identity in Christ. He wanted to keep his identity in his wealth rather than in Christ. So if we're still the metaphor of, of money... Maybe it should sound something like this, like, I've been given 10% of my income for the church for the last five months, Pastor. Great job. Super proud of you. Thank you for your generosity. We should live lives of generosity. God loves a cheerful giver, cheerful giver. All of those things that we're supposed to say from the pulpit about giving and on and on and on and on. Great job. I'm proud of you. But hey, Pastor, just so you know, um, credit card bills ran up pretty high in December because of Christmas. And so because of that, what we're going to do is we're going we're to take January off from, from giving, and then we're going to get right back to giving as soon as we can get the, get the card paid off. So great job at faithfully giving for five months. God sees your giving. God is honored by your giving. He is worshiped by your giving. But you dropped your faith as soon as you opened your credit card bill. You assume that God isn't going to take care of you as you are generous with your money. And I'm not saying if you give that God, like your next credit card bill is going to be zero, that he's just going to magically pay it off or anything like that. It's usually not how it works. The reality is, is God doesn't care if you're a millionaire, you can give enough money to pay off our building, hint, hint. Or if you're making minimum wage, his concern isn't how much you are giving, it is how much you're keeping for yourself. Then he finishes the text with a famous statement about the first being last and the last being first in the kingdom of God. There's a semblance of the opposite of this entire interaction in the parable of the poor widow. If you flip over to Mark chapter 12, we're actually going to preach on it in a couple weeks. But in Mark chapter 12, it goes verses 41 through 44. This is what it says. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. She gave more, not because she had more to give, but she was willing to go all in for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. 
She may be last here on earth, but in the kingdom of God, she's going to be first all day long. Why? Because she was giving. She gave everything that she had. And it's hard not to like venture into like the money side of things. I'm not telling you go home and sell your house and, and give it all to the church or give it all to a nonprofit or anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you are living a life that says, God, I will give you all of this, but I'm holding on to this, whether it's money, whether it's your job, whether it's your family, whether it's your sin in your life. We do this all the time with the sin in our life. That we come to like saving faith in Jesus, right? And we start walking down this road and we want to be better and we want to look more like Jesus. So we're becoming more and more sanctified or holy, right? We're becoming holier on and on and on. And so we're like, God, man, I gave you my anger. Are you proud of me? I gave you my anger. And God's like, yeah, man, that's so great. And I gave, you, I gave you my greed. I gave you my lust. Like, that's so awesome. So, God, you could take all those things, but me and pride, we're going to hang out for a while. I'm going to hold on to this one right here. Look at all the things I gave you, though, God. Like, look at all of these things that I gave you. Didn't I do so good? Like, yeah, you did great. You did great. But what about that last little piece that you're currently holding on to right now? You're living bifurcated in your faith. So the question becomes, where are you personally bifurcated in your living? What is it that you're currently holding on to that you simply won't let go of because it is the object of worship in a more real way than Jesus is? And maybe you're in here and you think, you know what, I'm good. I live my life well. I'm not bifurcated in my faith at all. Let me ask you a couple hard questions, okay? First one, what if the Holy Spirit called you to give, to give up, up everything you have to follow Jesus, would you do it? I think a lot of us in here would be like, yep, yeah, yeah I'll do it. All right, cool. All right, cool. Because, because that's, that's the Christian answer. answer. Even most pastors from the stage, as they're talking about like how to come to a saving faith in Jesus, it's like, will you, will you give up everything that you have? And we're like, yes, I'm never going to sin again, and I'm going to read the entire Bible today. And that's kind of what we think, but, but let's, drill down, let's drill down a little bit more. What if he said, I want you to drop out of college and go to work with the homeless in San Francisco because there's a deep need and ongoing spiritual warfare there? What would you say? Like, no, not San Francisco. Anywhere but San Francisco. What if he said that, I want you to stop what you're doing in your career and simply go be at home with your kids so they can be taught by mom or dad who, who Jesus is on a regular basis? Or what if he said, what if he said, I want you to sell your business, I want you to pull your kids out of school, I want your spouse to quit their job as well because there is an unreached group in the Amazon and I want you to reach them. Can we just acknowledge that all of these things are within the realm of possibility if you're a follower of Jesus? Can we just acknowledge that for a second? Because oftentimes I think we just get real comfortable, we're like, I worship Jesus on Sundays, and then my, my wallet can take care of the rest of, the rest of the week. I actually have a friend that that story is, is true of, a guy by the name of Bill Ganusi. And when I was at my last church, I was a, a youth pastor there, and my responsibility was putting all the mission trips together. And so one of the trips we, we took on a regular basis was down to Mexico, it was in Tijuana. 
It's called Mexico Caravan Ministries. And so we got like 90 sweaty high school students packed into this little room. And the rule in youth ministry is your accommodations always get to be slightly better than all of the students, right? So the two of us are just sitting right outside in the breezeway. So it's still hot, but it doesn't smell like B.O. And so the two of us are hanging out there and we're chatting. And then there is this, this missionary who would come and talk to us. And the missionary was just like talking about this unreached people group that he went and he was, he was in, in the Congo and he took his family and his son almost died and on and on and on and all these things. And I look over at Bill who's sitting next to me and his head is just buried in his hands. So I'm like, okay, keeping an eye on Bill. Like, are you okay? Heat exhaustion, you know, whatever it may be. And so we're good, kind of wipes his face. We go off to work for the day, and then we come back later on in the day once all the work was done, and we're kind of chatting over dinner, and I just asked him, I was like, hey, you good? I saw I was a little emotional this morning. Like, what's going on? And he said, Peter, I've been coming here. I've been going, doing this Mexico trip for two years. It's the third time now I've heard that same message from that same missionary. He said, the other two times, God had been calling me to go into missions, and I've ignored it. He said, he hit me like a freight train today. I feel like I need to go into missions. And I was like, cool, do it, right? <laughs> like, no skin off my back. Like, that's a great story for me to share one day in a sermon. I'm like, go do it. Here's the issue. You know, we think about that story. We think about youth ministry. We think Bill Ganusi, oh, man, that guy's probably early 20s. And not, Bill was over 50 years old. Bill had a son who was in college. He had a daughter who was a year and a half away from going into college. He had a wife who ran a successful business, and he was two years short of his pension for being a fireman. And God was like, go. Six months later, Bill sold his house, moved his entire family, except the kid who was in college, he stayed here, moved his entire family, and went into full-time missions and is still serving in full-time missions. Why? Because he wasn't bifurcated in his faith. The Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you want me to do, Jesus, whatever it is you want me to do, I want to do my best to exalt you in a very, very real way. And I get it. These things can feel like massive steps. That is a massive step. But here's the reality. We've got to have compassion on this rich young ruler because this is what Jesus is asking him to do. Jesus is asking him to say, get rid of everything and come and follow me. So often we see the rich young ruler as a man without any faith. But the reality is, this is us nine times out of ten. We are bifurcated in our faith, willing to worship something else, finding our identity in other places, rather than simply worshiping and honoring God and finding our identity in him alone. This guy knows Jesus is God. He clarified for that in the very beginning of the passage when he said, why do you call me good? Don't you know only God is good? And still, this guy chose the life he wanted to live with the identity that he got wrapped up in because he deemed it super important. Rather than saying yes to the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. And you know what it got him? You know what it got him? Choosing riches and wealth and, and an identity that was found on that. You know what it got him? Sadness. That's what it got him. So today, we're going to do something different. We're going to close up with a song. Ben, come on out. I know you're hiding back there somewhere. And today, I want this song. I legitimately want this song to be the cry of our heart, that, that we would be more interested in the things of Jesus than we're interested in the status of, of glory or, or, or our security that you have surrounded yourself with, that we're bifurcated in our sin in a very real way. And maybe for the first time, you are hearing this for the very first time. 
And you're like, man, I, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. Like, I want to go all in with this guy. And you want to make a profession of faith and you want to say, yes, he's going to be Lord of my life. We'll do that in just a second. But there's another group of people in here. Maybe you've been sitting in church a long time without knowing it, you've slipped into a bifurcated way of living. That at one point you said yes to Jesus, but, but sometime after that, you traded in your worship for Jesus for security in the eyes of the world. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance to repent of that. A chance to, to turn from your own way so you can fully focus on Jesus. So we're going to pray in just a second, and after we say amen, we're going to, we're going to sing a song of response, a classic song called Give Me Jesus. And I, I just, like, if that is true of you this morning, if, like, the desire of your heart is to worship Jesus and worship him alone and not be bifurcated in your faith, then sing the song. Respond in a way of worship to Jesus. Be proud of the fact that there is nothing else in this world that we would want other than the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God forever. So we can worship Jesus and Jesus alone. Why don't you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, I, I repent of my sin. I repent of, of my bifurcated life. when things get in the way of my relationship with you, when I deem things more important. And so God, I pray that you would continue to renew me, you would continue to, to sanctify me, to make me holy, that you would continue to do these things so I can love and honor you to the best of my ability. But God, the reality is, is that I fall short on a regular basis. So for those of you in here with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you have not yet said yes to Jesus and made that profession of faith saying, I'm putting a, a line in the sand, I want to follow Jesus, if that's you this morning, you can simply repeat after me in the quietness of your heart. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I have fallen short of your standard, and I admit that. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. So you can take that sin and I could be with you forever and see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. Meaning nothing gets in the way. And so then for the rest of us in the room, I just wanna give a second of just quietness, music playing for us to just simply repent of whatever it is that is getting in the way of our worship to you. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.